this morning to talk about heart condition. That's the title I've got in the PowerPoint, if we could put that up. And the reference is 1 Kings 15. Now, I've been uh, looking at... Uh, is it possible to switch this monitor on, somebody, Stuart, or somebody knows what they're doing? Because it really helps me to see what you've got on the screen behind. Okay? don't know if anybody technically knows how to do that. But... Um, so, actually, I want to talk today, under the title Heart Condition, about something that is relevant to every one of us. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. It's a fundamental aspect of our relationship with God. You know, there's a powerful moment in Old Testament history. And the Old Testament is history, but it's history with God involved in it. And it's God's perspective on what happens with the people of God, Israel. But there's a very telling moment in that history story. The prophet Samuel, who is a godly man and actually single-handedly has basically kept the nation from falling into utter chaos and wrecking their walk with God. The prophet Samuel knows that God wants to choose a new king to replace the disastrous King Saul. And Samuel goes, as God directs him, to a family whose head is a man called Jesse, And he has a number of sons. And God has made it clear to Samuel that one of Jesse's sons will be the new king to replace King Saul. And he goes into Jesse's household and before him is brought a fine, tall, strong, good-looking young man. Probably mature, that is not a a youth, but a full-grown man. uh, Healthy, strong, very good-looking and big, big guy. And Samuel, we're told, thinks to himself... Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. But as he's about to move on that and anoint this man, Eliab, God checks him and stops him in his tracks. And God speaks directly to Samuel and says this, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Now that is an amazing revelation. The Bible's full of revelation about God. Well, that is a key one. That God is telling us how he relates to us. How he sees us. How he knows us. He says, I don't look on the outside like you do. I look on the heart. That's how I judge. That's how I consider you. That's how I relate to you. And it's the deciding factor in our lives. The part of us that's most important to God is our heart. Now, we're going to read about two Old Testament kings quite a bit after David. They're kings of Judah. And this story comes at a low point in Judah's history. In fact, Israel's history. Israel itself is already split into two kingdoms after Solomon. And the better part is is the kingdom of Judah. And that's in quite a mess. Now, in 1 Kings 15, which I'm going to read to you, first 20 verses or so, we have the story of two kings, Abijah followed by Asa. Abijah is Asa's father. Asa takes over from his father. And as I read this story, I want you to see what the fundamental difference is between these two men. Actually, both of them make some very serious mistakes. Both of them get some stuff right. I'll explain that to you later. But there is a fundamental difference. See if you can spot it. Let's start reading at verse 1. 
In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. His mother's name was Marka, daughter of Absalom, actually. That's another name for Absalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commandments all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. As for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 41 years. His grandmother's name was Marka, daughter of Absalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his father had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Marka, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole. Asa cut down the pole and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. Now there was war between Asa and Basha, I presume it is, not Basha, that would be a better name maybe. Basha, we'll call him, king of Israel throughout their reigns. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent his commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered a whole bunch of towns, which I'll have trouble pronouncing. Verse 21. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah, withdrew to Terza, then King Asa issued an order. I won't read all the detail here. Basically, he rebuilt the cities Basha had knocked down. Verse 23. As for all the other events of Asa's reign, all his achievements and all he did and the cities he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of his father David and Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. We've got a slice of Old Testament history. But in it are two very important verses, two key verses. I reckon you probably spotted them. Verse 3, about Abijah. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Verse 4, about Asa. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord his God, all his life. That's verse 14 we need to put up. 
Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. These are the two key, this is the key difference, the two key verses to this story. Abijah's heart was divided. Now, I haven't had a chance to read to you the interesting history that we get in 2 Chronicles, because 2 Chronicles gives us a, a fuller story about this bit of Israel's history. We're not going to turn to it, but in 2 Chronicles 13, it tells us about some successful aspects of Abijah's reign. For example, he boldly resisted Jeroboam, the one who some months ago, weeks ago, was preaching about, had the two golden calves. If you're members of this church, you probably were here for the preach, you remember that. One at Dan and one at Bethel. Well, Abijah made a big play of the fact that they weren't going to compromise, they, the, the Judah, people of Judah. And he boldly declared, as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God. He made a big thing, not wrongly, about we have the temple, he's our God, we are not compromising on our worship. We are using the temple, we are observing the requirements of the Lord our God, we have Levites as our priest. God is with us, he proclaimed. He is our leader. Now Jeroboam attacked him and caught him in a pincer movement. He attacked from the front and the rear at the same time. And it looked as though Abijah and his army would be defeated. But the story, the recount in Chronicles tells us, Abijah and his army cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them, and they won the battle. And the writer says, because they relied on their Lord, the God of their fathers, they won. Now, that's not bad. He did well, Abijah. But we also learn from Chronicles of things not so good. That as he grew in strength, he married 14 wives. This is a familiar problem, not to us, but to them. Um, And these wives were all uh, from pagan backgrounds. So like Solomon, his grandfather, I think, can't remember the family line here, he should have known better, he embraced some of the religions that these women brought into his household. So they came to join him and they allowed them to bring their religion with them and he compromised his worship. But most serious of all, he was dominated by his mother, Makar. His mother dominated him. She's described as the queen mother. She was the big lady of the realm. And she worshipped at an Ashtoreth pole. Now that is a pretty revolting thing. It was a huge phallic symbol which was part of Canaanite fertility worship and worshipping the mother goddess. And that is what his mother did. And his mother was allowed to do it, and his mother was allowed to influence him. And Abijah not only kept the temple going, he also got involved in these other forms of idolatry and pagan worship around. Through his own weakness, he was dominated by the women in his family. He was dominated by his mother and by his many wives. And their religions got to him, and he worshipped other gods as well as the Lord his God. So it is is declared over him in Kings, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. It wasn't. He knew what to do, but he didn't just do that. He did other stuff to keep his family happy, keep his wives happy, keep his mother happy. He also got involved in this other idolatrous stuff. This is a fundamental issue. King David is mentioned in 1 Kings 15 in verses 3 and 5 as a good example. 
But David was not perfect. David made, well, quite a few mistakes and one gross sin, which is actually referred to here in 1 Kings 15, in passing, the sin to do with Uriah the Hittite. It was a very serious sin. And yet David is said to be a man whose heart was never divided. His heart was fully committed to the Lord. What's that mean? Well, it means in all his weakness and failure, David always knew God was the only one to worship and was where the answer lay. So even when David made a right mess up of his life, you find in Psalm 51, he's back with God saying, Oh God, purify my heart. Give me a steadfast spirit. He always knew that God was the answer. And he never thought of worshipping other idols. You won't find King David worshipping other gods. You won't find him dabbling in Canaanite rituals. He wasn't perfect, but his heart was, God is the Lord of my life and is the answer to my needs. And David is put forward as a good example. Now when we move on to Asa, let's talk about Asa. Put that up. Asa's heart, we're told, was fully committed. He was like his great-grandfather, David. Now, his life is also instructive, Asa's life. In verses 12 and 13, we see that he started his reign very well. That will go up on the screen. And he did a lot of things right, verses 12 and 13 of, of, uh, of 1 Kings 15. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. So he got rid of the stuff that his father had allowed to come in and had built. He even deposed his grandmother from her position as queen mother. That was brave. That was brave. He confronted his grandmother and he didn't allow her to be an influence any longer. He deposed her from the position of big lady of the realm. He actually cut up the great Asherah pole, and he burnt it in the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was the city rubbish dump. That was pretty strong stuff. He got hold of his grandmother's thumping great idol, cut it up, and had it burnt on the rubbish dump. It's a good start. He did well. And then, we're told, again in Chronicles, you won't uh, pick it up here, he also was attacked by the Egyptians, often called the Cushites. And he cried out to God, and God gave him a victory over a vastly superior army. He also reinstated the full details of temple worship. Verse 15 hints at that. He got the temple worship going again properly. So he did very well. Now, just in passing, let me say to you that if you are a person with a heart for God, that does not cushion you from trouble. Asa had a heart for God, but he had massive issues in his family, which he had to face up to, and I think would have been quite tough calls, dealing with his mother-in-law, a queen mother, etc. He had to make difficult decisions that may not have been popular, clearing out all these shrine prostitutes and all the rest of it. And he actually had to withstand an attack from the enemy. It would seem the Egyptians attacked because he was quite a successful king. And so he actually got under pressure from external forces as well. Having a heart for God will not exempt you from difficulties. You'll, make, you'll still have to make tough calls in your family life. You'll still have to apply the truth you know in daily ways, and you may well find that the enemy comes at you even more viciously. But in his early years, Asa was clear about the source of his help. It was God. 
unfortunately, people with a heart for God can still make mistakes. Now, that is tragic, isn't it? But it's true for us. The whole issue this morning I want to dig into and I want to provoke you about is what is your heart like? That is the issue. You see, it's not about getting everything right or getting everything wrong. It's about your heart. Now, actually, Asa had a good heart, we're told, right throughout his life. But he actually got some things wrong later in life, which are touched on here in 1 Kings 15. What happened briefly, he was attacked by this other king, Baasha, the king of Israel. And instead of relying on God, he relied on his own wits and his own wealth and his own diplomatic skill. That's summarised for us in verses 18 to 19. Now, it's quite a lot there, so I'm not going to read it all. It's just up there so you can skim read it if you want to. But the essence of it is that instead of looking to God, what Asa did was think, right, if I buy the support of the king of Aram, now the king of Aram was just a pagan king, an idolatrous king, he was nothing to do with Israel. If I buy his support with a load of money from my treasury and the temple's treasury, I'll get him to, to, to sneak round the back of Basha, attack Basha in the north, and that'll distract him and it'll get him off my back. It was a cunning plan. And funnily enough, it worked. It was a plan that worked. But it was totally his own plan, and he didn't think of asking God, it seems. He didn't, he didn't live out of his heart for God. He lived out of his brain, his rationale, his logic, his own human resources. Well, this is a problem. This would be a way of doing it. If I buy the support of that king, then I can outmaneuver Basha, and I'll, I'll be okay. In Chronicles, we get a longer account of this bit with some pretty powerful comments. And I have got that on the screen, thank you. If we could put up 2 Chronicles 16, I will read this to you. Because this is the Chronicles account of this, and it gives us a very important insight. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. That was a prophet who came and spoke that to Asa. And basically he said, you are a fool. You idiot. You should have moved out of your heart for God. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are committed to him. Basically, if you are a man with a heart for God, always draw your strength from God. Always draw your answers from God. You've forgotten where your heart is. It wasn't that Asa ever got into idolatry. He never got into Canaanite fertility worship. He never put up idols. He didn't lose it like that, like Abijah had. What he did was he began to live out of his own wits and his own wealth and his own ideas. And he forgot that God was the strength of his life. That when you have a problem, God's the answer. When you hit trouble... God's the answer. 
See, it's very easy as you get older, as he had, as you get wealthier, as he had, as you get more successful, as he had, that you rely on what you've built and what you can do. He was a very skillful diplomatic, it was was a very skillful diplomatic outmanoeuvre, what he did. He got Basher off his back by going round to the king of Aram, saying, here, you join me, tack him there. But he got then involved in something that rumbled on through his own reign and into his successors. And it was a terrible mistake, actually. He didn't realise this wonderful promise that's in Scripture. Let's just flick that, just that promise up again. It's the, it's the next uh, uh, slide, thank you. It just summarises one part of that verse. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let's leave it up for a moment. I want you to believe that this morning. I want you to understand that this morning. This is a promise of God. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, the whole world. God sees everyone and everything. And he strengthens those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The issue is your heart. The issue is your heart. It always, always is. And Asa had forgotten that. He forgot to live out of his faith, out of his heart for God. What about you and me? How do we respond to the double challenge that Abijah and Asa bring to our lives? I found it a double challenge. This is the double challenge. First of all, this point. Both Abijah and Asa did things right and did some things wrong. And yet the, 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 the judgment of the word of God, the judgment of heaven is that there was a world of difference between the two men. One's heart was divided and confused with regard to God. The other one's was fully committed to the Lord his God. It's all about the internals first and foremost. I'm challenged by that. We always want to get the externals right. And it's great if we do. But God says, I look on the heart. I look on the heart. You could look at the externals of these two guys and say, actually, Abijah did pretty well in the first part, and then he lost it a lot with all this idolatry and his grandmother and his mother and all the rest of it. And you could say, but actually, he started off well, but then he got a little bit sort of full of himself or obsessed with his own abilities. And, And one way you can think, well, why would one be considered very good and the other not? God says it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. That's one thing to learn. I think the second thing that challenges me is Asa himself. Are you, am I, living, behaving, believing out of my heart for God? Or have I gone over to my own resources, my own calculations, my own energy, my own wits, whatever way you want to put it, thinking I can always sort things out without much reference to God at all? which is where Asa got to, where he can sort things out without any reference or hardly any reference to God. Well, in the last part of what I want to say, perhaps I would estimate the last third <laughs> of my talk, I want to really explore this and apply it to us personally. Let's ask the first question. What is the heart? What does Scripture mean when it talks about the heart? This part of us that God sees and says, my eyes roam throughout the earth to look at people's hearts. What is it? Well, the heart is referred to 839 times in the Bible, at least 839 times. 
What does it mean, our hearts? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones helps me out, so I'm going to put up a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is, I think, a pretty good summary. In Scripture, the word heart generally means the very centre of the personality. It does not mean the seat of the affections only. It also includes the mind, understanding and the will. It is therefore the very citadel of the soul. The real you. Martin or Jones is not in the quote, but he goes on to say, we cannot read one another's hearts. There are things inside our hearts that no one else knows, but God knows. You really do not know another person's heart. That's why you can never make eternal judgments about other people. You can discern, you can make quality judgments on what you see. The Bible, when it talks about not judging, it doesn't mean you can't use discernment about people's activities. However, you are not able to say that person is hell-bound, that person is heaven-bound, they are a complete wipeout, they are wonderful. Big, deep heart decisions, only God knows their heart. Now, you can explore this in your own mind after I've finished. I'm raising some big issues, but I want to. But in the end, God knows the heart. And it is true that God really does know our heart. We're told the Lord looks on the heart. We're told the eyes of the Lord range to see heart. It's very much a strong anthropomorphic picture. God sees the heart. He sees it. He meet that. That's true. He sees it. I mean, do you let that sink in? The eyes of the Lord range. He sees the real you, the inside you. For example, he looks past our actions to our motives. Actions are important. They do have value. They really do. I'm not despising actions. But God is more interested in motives. He's more interested. He sees the motives. You can do a good thing with a bad motive. God will know that. You can do something you mean to be good, get in a mess, not do it very well, but your heart motive is great and pure. God knows that. And so God sees right through. He's more interested in why you do something than in what you do. Now, he's not disinterested in what. He's not got no interest in your behaviour, but he's more interested in why than he is in what you do. Your heart is the real core personality. That strange mixture of your, the real emotion, mind and will that makes up you and makes your choices deep inside. The you that has dealings with God. That is your heart. Now, what we're saying is scary at one level. Please don't leave me mentally or physically at this point because it's also encouraging. So listen, hear me out. But at one point, it is scary. And I think God wants it to be scary. Basically, he knows our heart and he's never fooled by external performance. God is never fooled. Other people can easily be fooled. God is never fooled by externals. He always knows the heart. But here is the encouraging bit. I think, personally, that truth is more encouraging in a funny way than it is scary. Because God sees the heart and he knows what our real heart motive is. And when we mess up on the outside or get things muddled and wrong or feel lacking in eloquence or ability, God sees the heart. 
When that little old woman was giving those two little coins, Jesus wasn't looking at the amount of money, he was looking at her heart that she gave it. It's the same in everything. When the Pharisees were and the scribes, they got everything right. God knew their hearts. He said, you're like whited sepulchres. And he, and he said, you know, it, it's just rotten bones inside. I can look right through the white and I see the bones inside. It's scary, but it is also encouraging. What it tells us is the big issue is our heart. The big issue is our heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23, says this. There's a lot of scriptures coming now. Whoever's doing this, but here's one. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That's telling, isn't it? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. I think it's Spurgeon who uses this illustration. I've ripped it off from him, I think. Think of a town and its water supply, the reservoir. And the reservoir is polluted. Now you can replace all the pipes, you can polish the taps till you're blue in the face, and they're all shiny gold taps. But if the reservoir is polluted, the water that comes through those taps will carry pollution in it. The heart's like that. You can get the externals lovely, but if the heart isn't right, there'll be dirt in what comes out. It will come out impure. It won't be solving the problem. In the end, you've got to clean up the water in the reservoir. Now, naturally speaking, I'm I'm speaking to all of us here this morning. Many of us are Christians, but not all of us. Naturally speaking, we all start with a heart problem. Every last man and woman have got a problem. We're a bit like the reservoir is polluted. That is our problem. Jeremiah puts it pretty bluntly. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This is the Christian philosophy, the Christian worldview. I stand by it. I think it's the one that makes sense of the world. Every human being's got a heart problem. Not that everything people do is wrong. Of course it isn't. But there is pollution right in the centre. The heart is deceitful and sin-sick. And so there's always going to be something wrong with what comes out. It can all be a bit mixed up. Sometimes it's quite nice, quite pure, with a little bit of muck. Sometimes a lot of muck. But it all comes from the problem inside. That is the Christian, the Christian worldview. That is the Christian analysis, the biblical analysis of the problem with the world. Who can understand it? Who can put this right? How on earth do you solve the problem of the human heart? Well, that is the whole point of the Bible and certainly of the Gospel. God has provided an answer to our heart problem. That is the Christian gospel. There is someone who can cure the heart. It's God through Jesus Christ. The whole point of the gospel, hear me, is a radical change on the inside. The promise of the new covenant is a new heart and a new spirit. Our consciences can be cleansed and purified. Our minds can be renewed. God will begin to work from the inside. He begins to clean up the very reservoir itself. The taps might still look a bit tarnished. The pipes might be a bit cronky. But the reservoir is getting pure. Now we might want to work on the pipes. We might want to work on the taps. But we've got to get the answer inside first. And that's what the gospel is all about. To become a Christian... It is a heart transaction. It's a heart issue. You recognise your problem. You recognise, I'm like that. 
I don't think that's that hard to recognise. We just need to have eyes that are open. The good things you want to do, you often really struggle to do. The bad thoughts, temptations, motives, actions that you know you don't want to do are all too easy to do. We sort of know that. But Jesus has died to forgive you for the wrong things you've done and to change you from the inside out. That is good news, isn't it? It's not only forgiving the stuff that's already come pouring out, it's actually cleansing the wellspring inside, the heart, with a new heart and a new spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you give your heart to him. Now that is an old-fashioned way of talking. When I was a little kid, we'd have choruses about your heart. I want to reinstate that. Here is a definition of being a Christian. You give your heart to Jesus. You give your heart to Jesus. And you let him do heart surgery on it. You let him begin to purify it. Begin to rearrange your thinking. He works by the Holy Spirit on the inside out. Being a Christian is giving your heart to Jesus. Jesus is my heart. If you like, like David, creating me a pure heart. Give me a steadfast spirit, Lord. That is the conversion prayer. I'm yours, O Lord. Have my heart. Now, as a Christian, you need to guard your heart. God does things in your heart, but Asa is a challenge to us. God can say all through he had a heart for me. He didn't get into idolatry. He still was single-minded in his focus on me. But actually, he didn't move and live out of his heart. He began to move and live out of his own mind and ideas. And I think there's a challenge. We need to guard our heart. In new covenant terms, it's as though Asa walked in the flesh, not the spirit. He stopped walking in the spirit, began to walk in the flesh. How then do we guard our hearts? Well, this is going to flash up pretty quickly. A few pointers from Scripture. Proverbs 2, verse 2. Turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Now, that's really ripped out of context, but the context would have shown you that the understanding being talked about is the fear of the Lord. I just didn't want to put a load of verses up. You apply your heart to understanding God. What's that mean? Well, in your core being, you say, the most important thing in my life is to know God. That is fundamental to everyone in this room. If you have trouble saying that, please go and sort, tinker with your heart and realign it. It needs recalibrating. You say, oh, but, 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 you know, because we go, oh, blah, 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 blah. you know, I still struggle with this and struggle with that. Yeah, of course you do. In your heart, do you say, God, I want to know you more. That's a fundamental sort of compass point that your heart is to want to understand God more. Here's another one, rather similar. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's exactly what Asa didn't do. That's exactly what Asa didn't do. He got a heart which wanted to follow God, but he got into leaning on his own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Learn to move out of your heart. Remember, that's not purely emotion. That's your inner being that wants to follow God. I'm going to move out of my heart. I'm going to trust God with my heart. 
Lord, I trust you in this. I don't understand it. I'm not sure. I know what I should do. I know what you'd want me to do. And it's all a dilemma. But I trust you. I've got the enemy coming. I know I could bribe King Aram. And actually, I probably could win him over and win. But I know that's wrong. So God, you better turn up. (laughs) That is trusting God. That sort of thing. Trust God with all your heart. Let's keep going. Uh, These are quick pointers, I said. Psalm 119, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is not merely for intellectual understanding. The Bible is not about just understanding ideas with your head. It's hiding it in your heart and living by it. The Bible becomes your worldview. The Bible influences your opinions on politics. It influences your opinion on everyday things like how much you're going to spend on your clothes. It influences everything because you've hidden your word in my heart. Oh, John, are you giving me a, a complex? Of course I'm not. Slap, slap, slap. I'm telling you, the Bible won't tell you how much money to spend on your pants. The Bible will tell you, if you hide it in your heart, it will give you values. It just gives you values. And move, hide it in your heart. It's not, it's not about mind all the time. Some of you've got, you, you're too clever. I've noticed it in Winchester. There's a load of stupidly clever people here. There's a lot of silly people have been to university. I've been to university, so hear me right. Sometimes we need, it's not just your emotion, it's your, your heart for God, not your calculation. And you've got to learn to do it. You've got to hide God's word in your heart. This Bible is for recalibrating my heart. That's what it's about. It's not a list of rules to live by. It's something that, that actually it's software. Let's do some modern. It's software for your heart. Uh, does that, is that any help? No, probably not. I shouldn't stray into that area. Hardly understand it. Right. Let's look at another one. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. What a wonderful prayer. That's something you can do. Pray that prayer. Lord, give me an undivided heart. You say, oh, because you're clever. You'll say, oh, you said we had one because of salvation. Slap, slap, slap. Just pray the prayer, right? Shut up thinking. Right. You know, give me an undivided heart. Lord, I want to live out of my heart. You hear me? Hear my heart. (laughs) I want to live out my heart. Lord, that is a prayer that is a good prayer to pray. And the next verse is good as well. So verse 12, thank you. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart and glorify your name forever. Here's a good thing to do. Make sure your praise comes right out your heart. It doesn't matter. You say, well, you know, I haven't got much to thank God for. It's been a rough week. I know. Now get your focus on God who is in charge of everything and who loves you and died for you, it's good just this morning. You know, Jesus died and rose again. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you've had swine flu or not this week. Jesus died and rose again. And, and you know, I'm not saying that lightly. Some of my relatives have had it this week. It's just that, like, what I mean is, our praise and worship is out of our heart, not out of our circumstances. That's what I'm trying to say. That's how you learn to be tuned in in your heart. And one last one from the New Testament. Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. Thank you. This is good practical advice 
about guarding your heart. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, just leave that up for a moment. I haven't time to really unpack that. But this would be what I think that is advising us. Live Godward in everything. Live Godward in everything. Now, you say, what's that mean? It doesn't mean have a neurosis and analyse everything from a legalistic point of view. It means give thanks for things and pray for things all the time. That's what it's saying. In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We need to learn to talk to God about all sorts of things every day. All day long. And thank him for all sorts of things. Thank him for your life, your health, your money, your house, your home, your salvation. Your fa- you know, keep being thankful. Now, these two verses, 6 and 7, go together. Sometimes Christians are a little bit silly and we rip one verse out, put it on the wall. I've done it myself, so it's quite an okay thing to do. But we need to remember the context. And if you read the second half, which starts at the word and, and the peace of God which will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. If you don't read that with a verse before, you don't really get the whole deal. The peace of God will work in the context of you living a life Not without anxiety, thank God, because I'm a terribly anxious person at times. But when you are anxious, turning it into dealings with God would be my way of putting it. Turning it into a mixture of thanksgiving and prayer and talking your fear out with God. God, please help here. It's a Godward thinking. If you have a Godward way of living, the peace of God will help guard your heart. And you will be conscious of that. And you living like that, need to be aware of the peace of God in your heart. And when you lose your peace, which is not an unreasonable term, so it's a bit of a cliche sometimes used by Christians, I think when you lose your peace, you do need to investigate it. It means something is not right. It may not be that you are doing the wrong thing. It may be that there's some attack of the enemy, or it may be that there's some poor relationship with someone's dis- 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 you know, some trouble there. It may be that God is just wanting to speak something into you. But I think one of the ways we guard our heart is to take careful note of our inner peace as a Christian. And you shouldn't drive a coach and horses through your peace. Oh, I don't feel very happy about that, but forget that, I'm still going to do it. No, no, you need to work on taking... It's, not, it's like a warning light flashing. You need to take notice of that peace problem. That if you, but that is in a context of being a God-centered person, okay? Try and understand what I'm saying. In a context of walking with the Lord, you try and be a person who thanks and talks to him and gives thanks, but there are times when that peace is disturbed. You need to take notice of that. That's one of the ways you guard your heart. But if you don't, you might well be opening yourself up to something that will spoil or pollute. It might not be. But I just think you need to take heed to it. It might just be that you're being over-anxious, in which case the verse before is telling you how to handle it. But it's something you should never just ignore, that loss of peace that comes. I'm talking about Christians walking in the Spirit and trying to follow God. Because above all else, we want to guard our heart, don't we? Now, have you understood what I'm talking about? Little nods and things. 
I haven't lost you, have I? Praise the Lord.